This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. George Sora. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Uh, each week, I go through a ton of research, reading, charts, all that kind of stuff. And on Saturday mornings, I send out a free email newsletter that highlights uh, the ones I found most valuable during the previous week. So if you'd like to sign up for that email newsletter, go to thefelderreport.com and click join now and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Eric Townsend. I first came across Eric via the Macro Voices podcast, which uh, he hosts, and he's just had a ton of fascinating people on there lately, including Lacey Hunt, Russell Napier, and Hugh Hendry, just to name a few. But Eric is a fascinating guy in his own right. He uh, started a hedge fund several years ago uh, after selling his very successful software business in the late 90s. He had a ton of um, great stories to tell uh, through his process of transitioning from technology and software into finance. Um, so I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Townsend. All right, and we're live. I'm here with Eric Townsend, software engineer, hedge fund manager, uh, Macro Voices podcast host extraordinaire. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. I'm a huge fan. I listen to your show on the treadmill all the time, and uh, I, I love your style, so I'm happy to be here. Well, it's the Mutual Admiration Society, I guess. I'm a huge fan of Macro Voices. I don't miss an episode. Um, but it's this is actually really fun for me to have the chance to talk to you for a number of reasons. One, your background is so varied, and, and it's not just finance, which is always interesting to me. And you've spoken to so many interesting people recently that... Uh, you know, I'm sure you have a ton of um, interesting ideas going around through your head. But let's let's start with your background. You know, you didn't start in finance. Where did you get your start? No, I was the prototypical computer geek. Um, I discovered computers at the age of I don't know ten or eleven, and um, my junior high school was the first junior high school in the country to have a computer. Uh, we happened to be in Concord, Massachusetts. The next town over was Maynard, Massachusetts, where Digital Equipment, which used to be the number two computer manufacturer in the world, was headquartered. So they donated a computer to my school, and I was the kid that was just absorbed with it. And uh, so ever since my I guess sixth grade, I, I was a um, computer geek. Unfortunately, that was way before it became fashionable and girls thought it was cool. So uh, I was still computer <laughs> geek back at the time. The, the whole chicks like uh, computer guys, that didn't happen until much later. <laughs> gotcha. The, uh, the whole Silicon Valley rock star um, deal. But um, yeah, so you started out uh, with computers and then I think you told me or it's in it's in your bio that uh, you spent a lot of time at MIT after that. So sixth grade, you had a computer, you got your start. And then um, were you just uh, how did you end up at uh, MIT? 
Well, it's, uh, I, I joke and say that I got into MIT the old-fashioned way, which was breaking and entering. And that's not quite true, but it's close. Uh, I, my dad was an MIT grad, and uh, my parents very much wanted me to go to Concord Academy, which is a prep school in the town that I grew up in. And they didn't have a computer. And the vocational school, you know, where the kids go to be plumbers and electricians and so forth in the next town over, Lexington, had a, uh, a PDP-1170, which was, you know, this at the time, just really cool computer. So I wanted to go to vocational high school, which my parents didn't approve of. And uh, my dad was trying to talk me out of this, and my mother was trying to talk me out of this. And one of the things that they did to talk me out of it was my dad took me to this weekend at MIT that was for high school students or, or you know, kids, children of, of former MIT graduates. And they walked you around the campus and showed you the dome, and this is MIT, and someday you'll be old enough to go to college, and isn't it great? And I just remembered the, the tour of looking in these windows. We weren't allowed to go into any of the laboratories, but seeing the computers they had there, and I just knew I had to have something to do with this. So I did end up going to a vocational high school, and uh, there was another thing that my dad got me into. It was a weekend. Go just once to the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT. And you could get, at that time, a, uh, a free login account. It was a time-sharing computers. This was all before there were personal computers in the 1970s. And I, uh, I had this login account. You could use the, the precursor to modern modems. It was called an acoustic coupler where the physical handset of the telephone got plugged into this little computer terminal. And I could log into the computer at MIT. Well, I wanted to be there. I wanted to have something to do with it. Well, they had in this laboratory the world's first laser printer, and this was before anybody knew what a laser printer was, and this was the days of letterhead means everything. So if you've got something on letterhead, it was taken as gospel. So I basically created uh, one weekend at MIT. I had snuck into the laboratory just by uh, you know following somebody that had a key and, and acting stupid and then following them through the door when they unlocked it. And I made this uh, acceptance certificate up that said that I was accepted to MIT's gifted high school student program and could spend every other week at MIT instead of going to wow. high school. And I yeah. took it back to my high school, and it, it was on MIT letterhead. Of course, it was all, it was this, uh, the, the first laser printer ever was called the Xerox Dover, and it was bigger than a, a Volkswagen. So I had used the Dover printer to create this acceptance certificate. And uh, I took it to my high school, and the way the high school worked was there was a week of academics and then there was your shop week when you would go, you know, learn how to be a carpenter or a plumber. Or in the case of my school, I was in data processing, which was really learning how to be a computer operator. It wasn't programming. But I got to spend every other week going to MIT, and I couldn't possibly go to MIT in the daytime because they would they would catch me. So I ended up uh, basically becoming a late-night hacker at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, uh, showing up generally after 9 p.m. and being out by 6 a.m. or so, uh, avoiding the, the bigwigs that were there in the daytime. And every all the grad students that were working in the middle of the night thought I was supposed to be there. They thought I was the computer operator or something. And at the first year or so, I was just sneaking in behind other people. And one day somebody came around with, you know, they change in the keys. Uh, you know, everybody has to turn in their old key and get a new key. And I just took a key off of my keychain from my house and I traded it for a new key to the ninth floor uh, laboratory where the computer room was. Oh and so all of a sudden, you know, I've, I've now got a key. Everybody knows me there. I'm hanging out with Richard Stallman, who later became the, the founder of GNU, which 
for computer people was a big deal. And uh, I, I spent most of high school hanging out at MIT, and my, my high school the whole time thought it was a legitimate program that never existed. So uh, I just snuck in, basically, and taught myself how to uh, be a computer programmer on MIT's computers. Well, I, I just love that story. But most people would not have the, you know, chutzpah, whatever you want to call it, to to do it. Was it curiosity that was driving you? Was it ambition? I mean, what was it that really set, you know, inspired you to say, hey, I'm just going to do this. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do it. Well, I guess I was really, really driven and absolutely fascinated with computers. And at the same time, you know, I, I just had this attitude of my my home situation was not perfect. My parents were, you know, all over my case that I had to go to prep school. And I, I didn't care. I, I just didn't care about the consequences. And I always assumed I would get caught eventually. And I never really did. Um and and uh, it, it was absolutely fantastic. I, I learned a huge amount, um, and and it was great. I I don't know how I got away with it. Thinking back on it, I can't believe I had yeah. the balls to do that. But uh, I got away <laughs> with it. It was and it was cool. It's fantastic, and it set uh, it set you up for um, to to take that path as a as a career later on, right? I mean, you went into. Did you go into software programming um, after that? Yeah, and it was really what I learned at MIT. The Before the internet was called the internet, it was called the ARPANET. And the lab that I was sneaking into played a really big role in creating a lot of that technology. So the development of the TCP IP protocol, which is the basis of the internet, was sort of being designed at that time. And I remember a lot of the people around me were working on designing those protocols. So I learned all about distributed systems and network computing. And I just thought the stuff they're doing in research laboratories at MIT must be the same stuff that exists, you know, in, in the corporate world. So when I, you know, finally graduated high school a year early, uh, I managed to get a job working for this guy for four bucks an hour. And I was basically going to be his assistant or something. And he's a, a programmer, the consultant that's working with digital equipment, basically developing application software. And this uh, this guy didn't know some languages that I did know just from, you know, what I learned in junior high school. And he got himself in a pickle and he needed a little bit of help. And so he's charging like 35 bucks an hour for uh, for his time. And he's having me do the work and he's paying me four bucks an hour. And I just, I, I was so excited to have the chance to, you know, get the experience and everything. I didn't, I knew it was an unfair deal, but I didn't care. And that guy turned out to be kind of weird and that I ended up not working for him anymore and going on and, and trying to figure out what else I was going to do in life. And one day I get a phone call and it was my future partner, uh, Mike Ronane, who calls me up and says, Eric, you know, the software that you wrote was fantastic. The other guy that you were working for didn't really work out. He's not working any here anymore, but we really need you back. You know, and he's at the time I, I was working as a part time ambulance technician driving an ambulance uh, outside of Boston for four and a half dollars an hour. Uh, this is around 1982 or so. And uh, or maybe it was 83. And I get this call and, 
and Mike says, you know, uh, the, the best I can do, we really need you. You know, I, I can get $45 an hour uh, and we can just pay you as an individual consultant. And I'm thinking, gee, that just happens to be exactly 10 times what I'm making driving an ambulance. Uh, well, I think I could work it into my schedule. So I, I basically got my start that way and I spent about 10 years uh, in the corporate world developing application software. And I was just, you know, the stuff that I saw at MIT was so cool and it didn't exist. So I started applying the concepts I learned about at MIT about distributed systems. And uh, for people who are, are software people, there's now an idea called... Uh, yeah, that's funny. It's the second time I've done this in an interview, Jesse. I can't even remember what it's called anymore because it they happens, didn't name you know, it until uh, after I was done with it. We'll, we'll Service-oriented architecture. There's an idea now called service-oriented architecture, and I'm one of the people who invented that. It was just because I was looking at how they build information technology systems in the corporate world versus all this really cool network stuff I learned about at MIT. And I'm like, there, there's a better way to do this. So I did a lot of really um, pioneering work and, you know, I was ended up uh, in the 90s running this company that I created because I wanted to take this technology to market and show people a better way to build uh, enterprise scale integrated uh information systems. And the tech bubble was so obvious in the late 90s. I'm like, you know, I, I got to cash out before this thing pops. And so I so didn't I, really... I got to just stop you right there and ask you, though, because for us, those of us who were in the markets at the time, for me, it felt obvious, you know, because uh, I was working in the business. But from the software side of it, I mean, how was it obvious to you? Were you paying close attention to the markets back then? Or was it just what you were seeing um, from, you know, executives at other companies? Well, I mean, what was it? Well, I think it was obvious to me that tech stocks in general were out of control and okay. it was a really bizarre thing that happened because originally the way that th things worked i ran a software a niche software consulting company so we're software services not software per se so we don't really have any intellectual property other than what's in our employees heads and the assets of the company are you know 25 laptop computers it's it's nothing in in the beginning you couldn't sell a software services company like that for much of anything because you didn't own the software product that was, you know, the basis of what these other software companies, you know, had in their equity. And what happened was a change in accounting rules. Number one, there was this pooling of interests rule, which allowed uh, earnings to be accretive on a backward looking basis retroactively for an acquiring company. And in an absolutely crazy way, it was the Y2K fears. This was 98 when I sold the company. Company. Everybody's freaking out about Y2K, and what it resulted in was big IT service companies, big software companies, uh, wanted, they just became incredibly acquisitive, and they cared more about your ratios than they cared about your revenue size. So we were still only about $10 million in annual revenues, but we had a 28% net operating income, which was unheard of for a consulting company. It was just because we were very good at what we did. We had a small number of very talented people, and we were able to command really high consulting rates. So what happens is in those accounting rules, they acquire the company and it becomes retroactively accretive to the acquiring company's balance sheet. So they can basically spruce up their earnings with accounting magic. And what was so frustrating is I invented some really, really cool stuff, Jesse. The people who bought the company had no clue what it was and they did not care. They loved the ratios. They loved the 28% 
NOI. They were willing to pay $31 million to acquire a company that had less than 40 employees at the time and no assets other than what's in people's heads. And it's like a million dollars a person to is basically a finder's fee for hiring our employees away from us is the way I looked at the deal. This is insane. And it had nothing, you know, and the company really was worth probably more than that for somebody who appreciated what was about to happen. This was 98. The whole uh, idea of service-oriented architecture didn't really get big until after 2000. We were on the leading edge of it. They had no clue that they were buying somebody on the leading edge of anything. They were just acquiring a balance sheet. And it was my introduction to the shift from entrepreneurial management and people who you know work hard to create value in the economy to professional management of publicly held companies and how they think. And it was a real education. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, so you have yeah, public companies focusing on financial engineering. Who would have thunk it? Right? I mean, that's it's uh, yeah, standard operating. And these procedure. guys had no clue what we did. They didn't care. They didn't understand. They just wanted to to financial engineer their our balance sheet into their balance sheet. And yeah, uh, and when you think about you know how many other acquisitions at the time, I mean, look at how many Cisco was just buying up a ton of companies and still have been. How many companies are still doing that today? But going on back then, you know. Uh, buying up companies for that possible financial engineering, but maybe they don't have the same um, intellectual, you know, um, uh, value that you guys were bringing. Um, yeah, so it, interesting for me to hear kind of what it was like from from that side of it. But so then you you sell the company in '98. You said, is that right? Yeah, and you know, there's a, another side to that story which I really screwed up. The the banker, he called himself basically the business broker, kept telling me, "Tell him Cushing.com," and I, I was trying to explain to this guy, "Look, the the dot com thing, like you're not a technical guy. Let me explain it to you. I'm a software expert." And he's like, "Look, <laughs> I, I, I'm I, I'm I don't care. I, I I'm not a software expert. I'm a business expert. I'm telling you, if it's Cushing.com, it sells for twice as much. Take the hint, kid." And I was <laughs> right. just just so preoccupied with you don't understand let me explain to you this dot-com craze it's about mm-hmm. e-commerce companies as much and he's just like just tell them it's cushing.com and i'm like well we do own that domain name he's like that's good <laughs> right. enough yeah. that's enough it's and like we probably could have gotten twice as much for the company if i had just right. listened to him and said it's a dot com because dot coms were selling for a fortune you know all that we used our cushing.com domain name for was email but the yeah. people that well, buy this stuff that do acquisitions in in big public companies are not paying attention and there were so many people that were did nothing of value that were selling their companies for way more than we got so i i blew it in that regard but yeah, yeah. it was 98 i was 33 years old and i did not plan to be retired at that point it was just the deal was too good to pass up uh when i became aware of what i could get for the company i said it's crazy not to take the money and run yeah. Well, and the dot com thing back then is like companies adding, you know, blockchain to their name today. You know, I, I think you see companies today that, you know, I, I think I saw one recently that was, um, you know, some type of a marijuana, you know, company, probably just a penny stock that a couple of years ago changed their name, you know, put marijuana in their name just to get a bump in the stock price and then changed it recently again, put blockchain in the name. And, you know, you see the stock price surge, you know, 50% or something in a day. It's pretty, pretty silly. But uh, yeah, so you sell the company and then you are retired. Um, And 
What, what then? I mean, I, I assume this is, you know, your first uh, introduction to how Wall Street works, um, not just in selling the company, but then, okay, how, what do I do with the money? Well, this was the single most uh, biggest mistake of my entire life was listening to it. Never take business advice from a lawyer. The, uh, the M&A lawyer who handled the sale of my company, when I told him my plan is I have always been fascinated by financial markets. I, I'm going to become, you know, trader, private investor. I'm going to run my own money. It's, it's going to be great. And he was just so emphatic. And he says, look, Eric, I've seen this so many times. You, you get a really smart guy. You you make a lot of money. It goes to your head. All of a sudden, your ego thinks you can do anything. He says, look, you're a very smart guy, but you're a software guy. You're not a finance guy. This is too much money for you to be running. You are not qualified to run your own finances. And what's more, you're big enough now, because my share of the deal was, you know, almost 20 million bucks after taxes and and you know, paying the, the brokers and the everything else. He says, you can get the services of the private wealth management department of the world's most prestigious investment bank to run your money for you. You cannot go wrong with private bankers at the most prestigious investment bank. I don't yeah. mention the name of it because they also right. have a legal department, but uh, people right. can, can guess which yeah. bank is most full of themselves for being the most prestigious <laughs> investment bank. And um, right. I was totally, completely suckered by these people. And I guess it's because I had grown up in a world where, it, you know, of course, there's always con men and sleazeballs in business. But in my business, once you kind of hit the big league, you, you don't see those people anymore. And I assumed these guys would be smart enough to, you know, they, their big pitch to me was, you know, we're greedy, but we're long-term greedy. And we're going to work with you for your entire life to make you super wealthy. And, you know, we're going to get paid our fees along the way. Um, they are greedy in all time frames, particularly the shortest time frame. And I got conned into this ridiculous overallocation to a private equity fund of funds. It was the highest fee structure thing they could think of to sell me at the time. They told me how never in the, you know, 100 plus year history of the world's most prestigious bank had they ever underperformed their special investment uh, target returns. They said to expect anywhere from 18 to 22 percent annualized return from this investment. It ended up losing money uh, in the end. And it was a 10-year, supposedly a 10-year closed-end private equity partnership. This is, what, almost 20 years later, and I still haven't gotten all my money out of the thing. It was somewhere in the small print they could could extend it. So I just got totally... totally swindled and I should have trusted my own instinct and ignored the lawyer. And so I had this great big gap of trying to be retired and living on a yacht and cruising around the Caribbean, uh, which sucked. It was not fun. We can talk more about that if you want. Um, and, uh, eventually it was out of necessity when I finally started getting some liquidity back out of this, uh, private equity deal that I got suckered into, uh, I, uh, you know, I, they had lost half of my money, basically. And it was time for me to figure out what I was going to do to rebuild some of that wealth. So I went back to what I'd wanted to do in 98, which is to reinvent myself as a full-time private investor and just learn as much as I could about investing. Uh, so okay, that's, well, that's kind of... I got to roll back to the Caribbean because I think for most people, <laughs> that's their dream, right? Is to, hey, I'm going to retire early and just cruise the Caribbean. What, what quote-unquote, sucks? about that. 
Well, the thing is, it, it, it's it's everybody's dream, mine included. And all I can say is, for everybody who's ever dreamed that, have you ever done it? Have you ever tried it? Um, for the first few weeks, it's an absolute blast. The the weather's beautiful, you know. That gets old. And when you're living uh, away from civilization for more than a short amount of time, it really gets to you. All of the interesting people, all of the intellectual stimulation – they all have jobs. They can't hang out in the Caribbean. So you get deadbeats, you get drug dealers running from the law, you get various people that for some reason are living in the Caribbean. Um, you, you don't really meet interesting, uh, people. So the, the living on a yacht, uh, and it also just draws all of the wrong people into your life. You know, the, the guy who has a yacht has no trouble making friends, but they're all the worst friends. So right. it was a, um, it was a mis- And it's also a lot of work because, you know, you, hurricane season is real. You got to get the boat out of, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, I have a, a house on the coast of Maine. So I ended up building a big dock there and, you know, it was delivering the boat the first year. That was a really cool trip. Uh, subsequent years, every year, you know, it's several days underway getting back and forth from, uh, the Northeast down to Florida or whatever. And, um, it, it just got old really fast. It looks incredibly luxurious and fun. It's not. And uh, I would say to anybody coming into wealth, if you think you want to own a yacht, it's always cheaper to rent them, uh, charter it first and see how long you last before you get sick of it. It won't take long. Yeah. You know, it's a, a common story. You hear people want to retire early and, and, uh, you know, my question is always, and then what, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do when you're retired? Because it seems to me, it makes a, a hell of a lot more sense to find something that you never want to retire from that you want to do forever. Um, that's, you know, intellectually stimulating and, and et cetera, et cetera. For me, it's the markets. And, and so I assume for you, that's, that's when you decide, okay, I got to I go back to this idea, uh, the markets have always been of interest to me, and I and I, I want to learn how to do this. Yeah, and it, you know the the thing is that I'm so much happier now, working hard, long hours in front of fifteen computer screens, than I was on a yacht. Uh, and it, it, you need a mission, you need a project in life, and I certainly envy people who have enough passion. What I spent several years doing after it, it was within the first year, it was very clear that it was not going to be fun to just be retired and not have to do anything. Uh, and so then I ended up extending the yacht, not because I really wanted a larger yacht, but because it was a really big project. It kept me busy for like a year and a half. Then the yacht is now extended. It's, it's 87 feet instead of 78 feet long. And, and, you know, I still have no need for it and no real purpose in life. Okay. And I, I went through several years of just trying to find myself thinking, okay, what's the, the do-gooder cause that I can get involved with to somehow change the world in some way. Um, that was very, very difficult because as much as there's lots of organizations that are trying to do good in the world, uh, they all have, you know, they're full of people with a lot of the right energy, but they're, they're kind of flakes. They're not business competent, frankly. And uh, I, I didn't find anything that I could get involved with. It was a, a do-good cause that would be rewarding. And um, I, at the same time, I didn't want to go and start, uh, you know, get 
back into living out of a suitcase and traveling for business all of the time and doing what I had done uh, before. And, uh, you know, being a private investor, it was just a fantastic experience from the day that I started it is when my life got better again. And the more that I do it, the the less it feels like work and uh, the more fun that I have doing it. And it's, you know, it's skin in the game. It's very hard to find a passion that you're going to do something that doesn't make money. I used to think, well, I've got enough money. I don't really need to make more money. Well, then the, the most prestigious investment bank lost half of my money, so I needed to make money again. But it was just so rewarding to be making money. And, you know, I could do it from wherever I have good, solid internet and can set my computers up so I can be any place I want to in the world. I travel uh, a lot. It took a big trip around the world. We can talk more about that if you want to um, for for about a year and a half. And... Um, you know, I've just been loving it, and I, I, I so regret letting this lawyer talk me out of it in 98. My life would be so much more complete if I had just followed my own instinct and started in 98 what I didn't end up starting until the end of 2006. Well, then again, you might not, you know, appreciate how much you enjoy the process now without having to go, go through that time where you didn't have um, something driving you. Um you, I, I want to find out a little bit more about um, what drew you to global macro because, you know, I talked with, you know, Bill Fleckenstein I interviewed a few months ago and he had a background in, in, you know, technology. And so he has that insight into when he's looking at semiconductor stocks and, you know, that, that kind of stuff where he has some kind of industry experience, which does set him apart from the rest of the, uh, the crowd analyzing that stuff. You know, it would seem like a natural fit for you to go into, you know, trading tech stocks. Well, you know, why not? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about trading tech stocks. The other thing that would be a really natural fit for me would be algorithmic trading because, you know, the, I understand the software engineering aspect of it and everything. And I, in the beginning, I kind of thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to go back to entrepreneurship of some kind, some kind of fintech company, whether it's, uh, I didn't know what high frequency trading was at the time, but some kind of algorithmic trading something. So let me go learn about this industry and find out who's doing what and what's it about. So I started going to institutional investment investor conferences and just trying to get my feet wet and feel my way around the industry. And, uh, you know, I looked at, you know, what are things like the Bloomberg terminal, uh, you know, and, and boy, there's an opportunity there for somebody that is the most pathetically malengineered software system in the history of the world, but (laughs) huge, just huge, huge market uh, capture. You need a lot of capital to try to take on Bloomberg and do a better job of what they're doing. So I I thought, okay, it's not going to be that. And I was really trying to figure out what, learn about the industry in order to figure out which kind of fintech software company I'm going to do next. That that was my initial thinking. This is probably 2006 going into the beginning of 2007. And somebody told me about Jack Schwager's Market Wizards books, and I started reading them to try to learn about different kinds of, you know, investing strategies and, and just trying to figure out what needed to be automated with computers where I could do something that drew on my skills. And it was reading, I think it was really the Jim Rogers interview that Jack does, and I think it's the first book, where I just got, whoa, this guy is talking about understanding the most fascinating puzzle that there is, which is just what makes the world work. And, you know, he's talking, writing about, uh, you know, learning why when there's a big earthquake in Chile, that makes the price of copper go up and, and why when, you know, this happens that it has this effect on this market and so forth. He's like, 
you can learn about the world and get paid for it. And he tells the story about how he fell in love with it. And I just said, yeah, that's really fascinating. So I got interested in Jim Rogers and just his personal life. And I started reading his books and I just fell in love with it. And so and it's, it's interesting because I am just absolutely hooked on global macro. Um, I've actually had more success trading in terms of making money, doing things that have more to do with pattern recognition in the term structure of the futures market. It's really not a global macro view that, that, you know, enables the direct profits that I make, but it's my fascination with macro that led me to discovering those opportunities because it, it just drives everything that I do. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, I, I think you've been influenced a lot by Warren Buffett. Uh, I, I would say that Jim Rogers is my Warren Buffett and uh, reading about his life and everything just got me fascinated and hooked on it. And I started reading and just learning as much as I could. Yeah, that Jim Rogers chapter, Market Wizards is one of my favorite books too. And that Jim Rogers chapter for me is just more underlined than any other chapter in that in that book it's uh i I just i love jim i'm gonna have to talk to him for the the show at some point see if i can get him on here but um so global macro is really your passion eric um that's that's obvious what um what are some of the uh larger themes i mean like you said you may not use them to trade but they can kind of inform your trading and help you find trades what are some of the larger um themes that that you're looking at these days well, the, the, everything for me starts with being as big picture as I can get and understanding the world around us and where we are in the, the story of world history. And Neil Howe's work in the book, The Fourth Turning, which is really started with the first guy I learned about was Nikolai Kondratiev, a Russian economist who did the work on long wave business cycles. And I think Neil Howe has really modernized that with his book, The Fourth Turning. So it basically is this idea that history comes in seasons that don't repeat, but they rhyme. They last for 20 to 25 years. And right now, since 2008, we've been in the winter season, which is uh, when things tend to go wrong. The previous fourth turning was the Great Depression and World War II. The fourth turning before that was the Civil War. Uh, The fourth turning before that was the uh, American Revolution and uh, Declaration of Independence and so forth. The, The war was with the British. And the one before that, I think, was the uh, the French and Indian Wars. I, I can't remember the some other war. So the fourth turnings are times when major changes in history occur, when uh, balance of power around the world changes. Uh, and we're in one now that started in 2008. We'll probably run through about 2030. And I think that it is a time, you know, everybody thinks the financial crisis of 2008. Well, obviously, that's the big deal. Well, if you look at the last fourth turning, everybody thought the Great Depression was the big deal of that fourth turning. And then, of course, they found out that, oh, wow, that was really just the opening act, and World War II was the really big deal. Now, I'm not predicting World War III, but I think in terms of the size of change in the hegemony of, say, the British pound sterling as the world's reserve currency prior to World War II, losing that in the U.S. dollar, you know, that basic uh, changing of the guard from the pound sterling to the U.S. dollar is the hegemonic currency. I think that the U.S. dollar could very well lose its uh, 
its hegemony in the world financial system in this fourth turning and that we might see a very, very different world in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. So I think that really big change is upon us. Uh, The future of the U.S. dollar is a really huge topic for me. It's something that I spend most of my energy on. And although I do agree with the long-term view that a lot of the, the doomsayers have, which is the U.S. dollar will lose its reserve currency status, I'm not in the dollar is crashing and dollar is going to crash camp. I actually see it the opposite way. I think that the problems around the rest of the world, uh, you know, the situation in Europe, the situation in Japan, they're going to uh, have worse problems than we have in the United States. They're going to happen sooner. And I think it's going to result in flight capital out of the rest of the developed world into U.S. dollars. So I see a final, you know, blow off top push higher. I think the U.S. dollar will appreciate before this is over. But ultimately, 15 years from now, I won't be surprised if the U.S. dollar, uh, you know, doesn't go away or anything. Look at the pound sterling. You know, the, the, it used to be the currency of the world. Now it's one of the most important ones, but it's not the one anymore. And that has resulted in a major change in Britain's role in the world. It's it's not like Britain is the uh, the hegemonic power of uh, of the planet the way it once was. The U.S. has that title right now, and I predict that the U.S. will lose that title by the time we get to two thousand. Forty, I think that Asia's century is really going to be taking off. Uh, does that mean there's war between now and then? I don't know. Could be. But I think that it's economic forces uh, rather than political forces that are driving this. And I do think eventually Jim Rogers will be right that Asia's century is the 21st century. And uh, probably China is going to have a washout before it really, uh, you know, U.S. had the Great Depression. China's credit expansion since 2008 is a mess. Maybe Kyle Bass will be right and China will crash and you know things will really fall apart if it does that'll be the buying opportunity of a lifetime because i think that asia is really going to take off so uh, a lot of my views are really high level like that and you're right it's really hard to trade those and make money next month with a view like what's going to happen by 2040 is a, a major change in world powers but it's these Uh, topics that interest me so much at a really high level that give me the energy to go learn about things. And there's one in particular, which is what I call peak cheap oil. And we can talk in more detail about that if you want to, but that's what's led me to this term structure trade where I make most of my, my trading profits. And the term structure trade itself is not that interesting, but the way that I found out about it has been absolutely fascinating. And and so that well you know like you said yeah these so these are high level macro themes but I think it's almost required to be a you know successful um, trader on a lot of these levels to to have or at least to be a successful global macro investor to have these high level themes that inform your other trades um, simply as a foundation because um, you know you could be trading you know. I, I don't know, uh, dot com stocks and not have an understanding of the larger fundamental uh, picture that's, you know, going on and, um, you know, be, you know, become a victim of the downdraft afterwards. So it's really just paying attention to the larger themes and larger trends, really. Um, how, how does that fourth turning idea, is it, is it really just the oil trades that, that have come out of that for you? Or are there other concepts that, you know, inform the way that you have allocated your assets right now? No, I think that, um, you know, there's a big question. I, I pay a lot of attention to the gold market. 
um, I, I've been kind of indecisive because I do think that the pressures that exist in the whole Western world are probably going to cause massive capital inflows to the U.S. dollar. Of course, gold is priced in dollars. That's a big headwind for gold. It's a good argument to wait. On the other hand, I'm convinced gold is the big winner in the end game. Eventually, we will get to the point where the U.S. dollar is losing its hegemony in the global uh financial system and definitely at that point you want to be long gold are we at the point where it's time to really be strategically allocated to gold or not uh i'm a little bit on the fence uh, I, I definitely you know want to have exposure but uh not in a big way right now uh, i think that we may have thousand dollar gold or lower uh coming in the next few years if so that's going to be a fantastic buying opportunity um, so, you know, the, the, the long-term views definitely inform me. Peak cheap oil is a whole other category. It's really uh, well, another topic. Let's get into that. What, what's the, uh, the idea behind that? Well, the idea is basically that although I disagree with people who think that the world's running out of oil or anything like that, that's crazy. We're always going to have plenty of oil to run the economy. But the point is, the cheap and easy stuff where you just drill a hole in the ground and oil comes gushing out, that's all been discovered, exploited, it's used up. There's no more of that. Right now, we have this shale boom going on, which was really enabled by malinvestment as a result of the easy money policies that the Federal Reserve has given us for the last eight years. So you've got massive, massive amounts of capital available in the junk bond market, which is financed the overdevelopment of shale. The thing is, these shale wells are a totally different animal than conventional oil wells. Their depletion rates are just incredibly steep. So you drill that shale well, you spend the money, you get it operating, it produces a whole lot of oil for the first year or so, but then the decline is just astronomical after that. And you can refract some of these wells and get more oil out of them. But the point is, all of this technology, and you know, it's it, when shale plays out, which it will, there's more. There's deep water. There's ultra deep water. There will eventually be Arctic deep water uh, oil exploration. The point is, it all comes at incremental cost. So the cost of oil production, uh, the, the stuff that you could economically produce for 10 or $12 a barrel, we're out of that. And the major oil fields in the Middle East are all in decline. And estimates are that by 2030, they will have declined dramatically from their peak production. Yes, you'll be able to discover more oil with deep water, with tar sands, and with these other exotic technologies. It all costs money. So what I predict happens is there are several waves. And the, the anatomy of a wave, as you start with, we used to be able to supply the world's oil demand with conventional oil. Conventional oil production peaked in 2005. That's a fact. It has not been exceeded since then. You say, wait a minute, oil production has grown since 2005. Non-conventional shale oil and deep water and these uh, tar sands, other uh, ways of producing oil other than the conventional just drill a hole in the ground. Those have added that capacity. Well, they have a, a floor. We can't go back to $10 uh, oil because it costs more than that just to run the, the even the shale uh, projects, you know, they, they have probably a $50 break even uh, to recover their investments. And even if they're losing money, they get down to about $22 or so. And it becomes uneconomic just to continue operating them. You know, the cost of the electricity and everything else, they, they shut them in and wait for higher prices. So we have a floor and 
Eventually, what will happen is shale will get played out. Those resources are not plentiful across the world. You can't take shale everywhere. You, you can take it beyond the U.S., although a lot of countries are trying to ban it now. Eventually, you get to the point where the shale plays in the U.S. are played out. And uh, right now, I think the Bakken is mostly played out. The Permian Basin is where there is still economic opportunity to produce shale oil. Eventually, that will play out. And the way to get more oil will be to go back to deep water drilling. Well, a lot of those assets, uh, you know, have have been taken offline and, and basically mothballed. It's going to cost a lot of money to get that going. So the anatomy of these waves is you start with something like shale. Before, we didn't need shale. So you got $10, $12 oil. Then you need shale in order to produce enough oil. Well, shale was new. Technology wasn't new. Fracking and, and horizontal drilling have been around for like 50 years. But the widespread commercial application of those technologies was fairly new. So at first, it was very expensive. You needed $80 oil prices to break even on a shale well. What happens is over time, you get good at that stuff. You automate it. You, you increase the knowledge and ability. You come up with ideas like pad drilling that radically uh, improves the the efficiency of shale oil development. Okay, now we can bring those break-even prices down to 40 or $50. Well, what will happen is we get the next wave where it's deep water uh, that has to come next because shale's not producing enough. Okay, now you need $100 oil. So prices go way back up as they did when shale used to have a $80 break-even price. Then eventually you'd produce more of the offshore drilling rigs. You automate them. You figure out ways to make them more efficient. The break-even cost of that comes down from 100 down to 70 or something, and you have another wave down in prices. Then you get to the point where you've produced all of the you know deep water. You have to go to ultra-deep water, and it's more expensive technology. Each successive wave of technology increases the floor in oil prices and also raises the short term, uh, you know, the wave, the crest price, which so far has been $147 a barrel. Uh, I predict that once shale is played out and we've got nothing but uh, offshore as a way to get more oil, eventually we're going to get above that price and we'll probably get to $200 oil. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation. People think, well, electric vehicles are going to change everything. And what they don't understand is electricity is not an energy source. It's an energy delivery mechanism. So one of two things has to happen, Jesse. Either there's a radical, radical shift in public attitude towards nuclear energy, which could change everything. And we can talk more about that if you want. I can go on for hours about that. But if you take the current social attitude, which is no way on nuclear energy, you've got to burn some kind of fossil fuel in order to produce the electricity for those electric vehicles. And it's not necessarily oil. It can be natural gas. It can be coal. It changes the dynamics, but you're still burning fossil fuels in order to create that electricity. Hydrogen is the other one people are confused about. There's no hydrogen mines. There's no hydrogen wells. And people will tell you, well, wait a minute, hydrogen is the most common atom in the universe. Yes, it is. But on this planet, it's mostly bonded to other atoms. And, you know, water is a ready source of lots of hydrogen atoms, H2O, two hydrogens, one oxygen. The thing is, you have to spend lots and lots of money, lots of electricity in order to separate those hydrogen atoms from the oxygen atoms and turn water into hydrogen for a hydrogen fuel cell. So it is super expensive in terms of electrical consumption to produce the hydrogen you need 
need uh, for hydrogen-powered vehicles. So hydrogen and electricity are not energy sources. They're just ways of delivering energy. The energy's got to come from someplace. Now, you could, you know, change the attitude in the world around nuclear energy. That could be a game-changer. But even if you got that game-changing attitude change and all of a sudden uh, people were socially, you know, willing to consider uh, nuclear energy again. And by the way, uranium reactors really are a bad idea. Thorium reactors are the way to go. We can get into that more if you want to. Uh, if you made that decision, it would take decades, decades to scale up and build the electrical grid and, and build the nuclear power plants and do all those things you needed. So for a very long time to come, liquid fuels derived from oil are going to be a really big part of the game. And electric vehicles don't change everything. And we're, we're still going to need oil. And as long as we do, uh, we we are going to have some challenges. Right now, we've got a, a glut of oil, an excess of oil, probably another year before that's cleared. Once we get past that, there's going to be uh, a, a massive uh, increase in oil prices as we get through this glut. And all of a sudden, guess what? All the offshore rigs that know how to produce those deep water wells, they've been mothballed. They're not ready to go. And it's going to cost a lot of money to get them going. Yeah. Um, so as a function of your, I'm just trying to reconcile the, you know, the dollar view with the oil view. Um, short term, do you think oil goes back and tests its lows if the dollar is going to rise and then, you know, before we get uh, a new big bull market in oil? Or, I mean, do I have that wrong? Well, there's, it's really hard to call this. Um, there is definitely an argument. I have been very bearish in the short term on oil prices. There is an argument for a retest of that low in the high 20s, you know, around $30 or so. Um, the thing is that the argument is that the market is not really rebalancing the way that people think it is. And uh, that, that, that the continuing oversupply could take us back down there. Well, the thing is that what's happened is especially in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, the Brent WTI spread widened dramatically. All of a sudden, exports are through the roof. Now, I personally don't think that the market has come back into a balance of supply and demand. What has happened is the accumulation of oil in storage that was most visible in the United States is being moved. It's a shell game. And uh, I sometimes kind of get conspiratorial and wonder who might be gaming things in order to cause that intentionally to happen. Uh, I, I can't prove that that may be going on. But I think that what's happening is one way or another, whether, whether somebody's doing it intentionally or not, the, the growing stockpile of crude oil stocks that was visible in those EIA inventory reports every Wednesday in the United States are going someplace else. The oil is piling up elsewhere in the world. And what you see is this really dramatic uh, drawdown in crude oil inventories in the United States. They're still piling up in Cushing, Oklahoma, interestingly, which I think has to do with Cushing being a little bit landlocked. But as far as Gulf Coast price or Gulf Coast inventories, uh, there's major drawdowns. Art Berman just had an excellent article uh, on his blog about this, talking about how, you know, we, we go uh, another 
you know, go as much in drawdowns as we've had this year so far again, and we're back to normal levels, and that's going to push oil prices back up. So I thought we had another wave down, and I, what I've been saying for the last year or so is this next wave down is the last one, the low of, let's say it's $30 that I think we get maybe before the end of this calendar year, 2017. That's probably the final low, and it's all uphill from there. It's starting to look to me like maybe that final low uh, already happened. Maybe it's not coming. Uh, I'm still leaning towards it is coming, but I'm not nearly as high conviction as I was before. And the reason is not that I think the market is rebalancing, but I think the illusion of market rebalancing is being created by what's happening with a shell game, moving uh, oil and storage out of the United States to other locations around the world. Okay. I, I want to um, come back to the, the fourth turning idea because I, I really just wanted to ask you is you moved out of the United States in 2009, I think uh, you said. And was that, did that have anything to do with this fourth turning idea uh, or what, what was really the impetus behind the move? No, the, well, first of all, Going back to my very first trips to Europe as a teenager, I've always had a different attitude. You know, so many Americans have this, you know, USA number one, we're the, we're the top dogs, everybody else sucks. Uh, I've always thought that the world's a fascinating place, you know, just as I would like to travel to as many different states as I can in my lifetime and see the country, uh, I'd like to see the world. And so to me, uh, when I realized at the age of, uh, 44 that I had spent my entire life living in one country when I have the wherewithal to live anywhere I want to. I thought, wait a minute, why would I not try living in another country? And I guess the other thing that was going on for me at the time was in the wake of the financial crisis and particularly seeing the bailouts, I, I just had become so frustrated with the situation in the United States. And I just felt right. like, you know, the government is bailing out Wall Street. Most people don't understand it. Most people I talked to didn't care. They, this, uh, I had made my decision to leave before the, the real financial crisis, uh, had, had hit. I had anticipated that it w was coming. And really, I anticipated in 2009, although I was way off of the timing, the things you're seeing now, the Charlottesville riots. I, I remember saying in 2009, I'm getting out of the United States because there's going to be, uh, riots in the streets by 2011. Well, I was about five years early. The riots in the streets that are all driven by wealth inequality uh, is what I predicted. And I thought, you know, I'm a wealthy guy. Um, I think that for very understandable reasons, most of the country is going to want to kill wealthy guys because they're going to confuse us with the bankers that got these bailouts that they never deserved. And um, the fact that I actually created value in a lot of employment and, uh, and did good things in the world is not going to matter when the pitchforks come. And uh, I was actually very concerned about the s social stability of the United States at the time. I was way early. The things that I predicted to happen by 2011 or 2012 are starting to happen now. I'm afraid they're going to get worse before they get better. And I do think it's all driven by uh, corruption and wealth inequality. You know, the, we, the, the system that 
I am so proud to have been born in the country that celebrates government by the people, for the people, and of the people. We have government of the special interests, by the special interests, for the special interests. And unfortunately, what happens is the general public doesn't really ever understand the details. They intuitively figure out that they're getting screwed. They get pissed off and they start throwing Molotov cocktails because they're pissed off. And uh, I, I don't want to be the victim of hate crime because I am perceived as uh, as one of the rich guys. You know, I'm not one of the rich guys that caused the problem, but, uh, you know, living on a yacht is <laughs> yeah. not exactly uh, low-key. So getting rid of the yacht, uh, living a much more low-key lifestyle, and exploring the world has really been very fulfilling to me. So uh, I did have some concern about the domestic situation, but it was more just a desire to want to be able to uh to experience living in other cultures and uh and and life outside of of just one experience broaden your horizons there's there's so much uh else out there and uh but uh yeah you know i think you also told me you're a pilot um and does that have uh enter into or affect your um how you trade how you think about the markets um for for me it's uh something that is i've wanted to try for a long time and in fact when i was in college i called the the navy recruiter several times this was after top gun you know and i thought hey, i want to do that and they told me jesse do you have 2020 vision i said no I said uh, well do you have any other said, yeah i got flat feet they go to hell kid basically it was funny for me to talk to tom mcclellan too because he was in the service i think he was a helicopter pilot at the time and basically they were downsizing uh the military through that through that period in the early 90s and so um it didn't work out for me so i'm jealous yeah tell me tell me about flying and and how how you what what you enjoy about it um and so forth yeah flying airplanes was really my huge passion all through my 20s and into my 30s um and i was pilot and flight instructor and i just totally gung ho it was it was my uh by passion. And it definitely uh, has helped to shape me as an investor and trader. A lot of people have the wrong idea. If, you, if you've never flown an airplane, you, you kind of look at the picture of the instrument panel. It looks very intimidating. And people think that the flying the airplane is hard. Actually, flying the airplane, even a commercial jetliner, is easier than driving a car when everything's working. The thing is that when an emergency happens, it requires an incredible uh, discipline of keeping your head, and particularly what uh, aviation has taught me is that human beings are incapable of making really good decisions in an emergency. It's just something that we're not wired to do. Your your adrenal reaction kicks in, this fight or flight reaction. You get superhuman strength, so you can you know lift the the fallen tree off of your uh, your kid or something. It doesn't help you to fly the airplane, and it doesn't help you to figure out what to do when you're you know in a margin call situation in a trade. And so pilots think about everything that could possibly go wrong and having a backup plan and a backup plan for the backup plan and a backup plan for the backup plan for the backup plan in case that plan doesn't work and think about things ahead of time and have a plan for how they're going to react. 
And uh, that really has defined me as an investor. I remember the flash crash. I was sitting, it was in Hong Kong where I was living at the time. It, it was three o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, the flash crash started. And I was long S&P futures uh, at, at the moment that it started. And one of the things you're, you're taught as a pilot, regardless of whether it's a, a, a two-crew environment where you're talking to another pilot or just flying an airplane by yourself, you always call the emergency checklists out out loud. It's, it's just for some reason, it helps you to not screw up and get it right. So I'm sitting looking at S&P futures crashing, and I'm literally saying everything forward gear up flaps up blue line identify <laughs> dead puts the dead engine verify inoperative throttle to idle feather that engine everything forward five degrees half a ball and blue line which is pilot talk for what you do when the engine fails on takeoff and i was just looking at okay i've got to get my my pilot head on it is not time to panic it is not time to have emotions and ne emotions never help you in the cockpit they never help you in trading I need to suppress that and figure out what to do here. And uh, I, I actually, you know, I'm calling out the pilot checklist to get my head into the place where I turn off all emotions and just, you know, you, 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 what you tend to do in an emergency is try to rush through really important things because you feel that sense of urgency. So I've got to act really quickly to take a deep breath. Okay. Make the right decision as quickly as possible, but take enough time to make the right decision. So I think it, it definitely has uh, affected me as a trader. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it really has affected a lot of aspects of my life. I'm, I'm very good at dealing with emergency situations. I was an, an ambulance driver and then I was a pilot. And those are both things that have to do with dealing with emergencies without freaking out. And it, it definitely comes into play in trading. Well, in addition to my brother and my uh, brother-in-law are both pilots. And, you know, it, it seems to me that flying has taught them some self-awareness to know their own limitations. And, you know, my brother is uh, just, you know, VFR rated. And so, you know, he's like, I, I got to look at the weather. I can only fly in certain conditions and I'm not going to even test it, you know, these other types of conditions, I'm just going to make sure it's, you know, well within my abilities to, to fly. And so, you know, they, yeah, there's a lot of different, uh, different metaphors there that are, that are good for, for trading. Um, Eric, how can, um, people keep in touch with you besides the macro voices podcast, which I highly recommend people want to fo uh, follow you and your ideas. Where can they find you? Well, Macro Voices is definitely the main place because that's you know my weekly podcast where I, I express my ideas every week. I do have a website at www.erictownsend.com. To be honest, I, I don't really have anything going on there anymore. I used to uh, write a, a, a newsletter uh, called Peak Oil Investor. I stopped doing that when I did the podcast. So I think the podcast is probably the main thing. Um, and, you know, tune in, check it out. It's uh, a different style from yours. But, uh, you know, as you said, uh, I listen to yours every week. You listen to mine. You said you never miss an episode. You might not miss an episode of mine, but you missed a whole bunch of episodes of yours. I was pissed off when, like, every Wednesday I'm I'm looking for the latest from Jesse and there's no new podcast. Well, so <laughs> You said you, you, know, you took a break from the website. I'm, I'm still trying to write and record the podcast, and it's a ton of work to do it, to do it all. So, yeah, I understand you dropping the, uh, the website in favor of the podcast. It's hard to do them both. But um, Eric, this has been a, a blast, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on uh, on the show. Thanks for doing this, and we'll have to do it again uh, sometime soon. Oh, it's great to be on the other side of the microphone. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high.